You, you say you seek the spirit, mm -hmm. that you seek the divine, and, and this is what comes to you, a bland reproduction of the classics. I expected more. How many pieces have you abandoned? Well, try to finish something for a change. You'll find it helps your reputation. They clearly had a big impact on each other. And although we think of Leonardo as somebody who didn't finish paintings or commissions, Michelangelo was often in the same position too. Michelangelo painted the entire Sistine ceiling in four years. Leonardo was working at a tenth the speed of Michelangelo, if that. He even had a vegetarian restaurant that he opened with Botticelli, who was a friend of his. And I think it was called The Happy Snail. Da Vinci wasn't the only painter in Florence in the early years of the 16th century who'd go on to become world famous. The city was bustling with creativity. So let's also welcome Michelangelo to our story. Michelangelo, congratulations, your statue is a success. How kind. 15th and 16th century Florence is one of the most competitive places to be an artist. But there were also more patrons than there were anywhere else and also elsewhere in Italy. And so, of course, these artists who were at the top of their game were working for the same people. And they were both also citizens of the same city, which is quite an extraordinary thing as well. Caroline Campbell from London's National Gallery joins us to talk about how influential Michelangelo was on da Vinci and vice versa. As we see on screen, it's true the pair were working in the same room on two different commissions. We'll catch up with the Royal Collection Trust's Martin Clayton to hear what Leonardo was painting on his side of the room, the now lost battle of Anghiari. It was huge to begin with. The Battle of Anghiari was to be about 20 metres, 70 feet wide. It took Leonardo four years or thereabouts to paint the Last Supper, and the surface area of the Battle of Anghiari, to speaking in very crude terms, is about five times the area of the Last Supper. So it would have taken him many, many years to accomplish. As well as getting to know da Vinci's famous artist contemporaries, this time we'll also get a wider understanding of who were the key allies in Leonardo's household and the truth and impact behind his being an illegitimate son. Leonardo's father, Sir Piero, had gone off to work in the city, in Florence, and he appears to have come back to the village got a local teenage girl called Caterina pregnant and he basically abandons the kid to his parents. We're also going to investigate this theme of curses and superstitions that runs through the drama series with a Renaissance expert from the University of Verona. There was also the idea that if your face looks like that of a bird or a cow or a lion, you would have that as a character in your personality. There was a, a so much belief in the, the world as one of correspondence between the inner and the outer, between the man and the cosmos. I'm Angelica Bell, and this is Leonardo, the official podcast, episode seven. Director Dan Percival returns as we examine this episode's themes of illegitimacy and rivalry, and why da Vinci was such a complex and enigmatic character. There is still so much story to tell. I read also that you filmed 2,000 hours 
of this. So this, could this have been a twelve-parter? You know, even <laughs> did you, I? even even you, yeah, you you, right, you said that you just scratched the surface. Did you? Was there so many other things that you could have shown in this? Yes. Oh my God. I, I mean, Leonardo lived into his seventies. I think he was in his seventies when he died. Some people know him for his inventions. As we walk, the wheel revolves. The balls drop down, so we can measure perfect distances. Some people know him for his anatomical drawings, which was an obsession of his. There are thousands of anatomical drawings. He must have dissected thousands of cadavers to have achieved that. This here is the human heart. And with enormous skill and accuracy, they're still used in medical training to this day. How do you know what it looks like? Professor in Pavia gives me bodies to dissect. You cut up dead people. And others know him as the creator of the Mona Lisa, and that's it, or the Last Supper, and that's it. I was captivated. I felt I was sitting at Christ's table. It was glorious. But those were side projects for Leonardo. I mean, he was a court artist, theatrical, empresario. I must be the creator of a world within a world. He even had a a vegetarian restaurant that he opened with, I think this is right, I've heard it so many times. He, he opened with um, Botticelli, who was a friend of his. Um, and I think it was called The Happy Snail. <laughs> but it was, and he came up with menus. And so he was, he was, he was a Jamie Oliver. He was, a, he was um, a kind of flight engineer. But how would you like to go fly? Fly? Like a bird, what do you say? Yes, please. <laughs> he invented means of powered flight that were very, very close to being capable of working. You know, modern hang glider design couldn't come about without his original concepts for these. And I've spent years designing machines to let people fly. But the materials were just too heavy at that point. Did they work? Not yet. And he invented bicycles. He literally invented a geared bicycle. The world just wasn't ready for him. He was literally centuries ahead of his time. His brain was just, I don't know how, you know when you, you meet people who are so intelligent, you're like, oh my gosh, how do you rest? Yeah, the inside of his brain was a very noisy place. There are thousands of other questions. How does the water flow? How does it turn? How does it tumble? How does it react with everything else around it? There are thousands of questions that need unraveling. One relationship that I did find really interesting um, in the series was that of Michelangelo and Leonardo. And it, it was almost the way that they had to, you know, both the frescoes, designed these frescoes and and it was almost like reality TV in the Renaissance era, wasn't it? It's just like this battle off. And I was just thinking, oh my goodness, to be an artist and then have another amazing artist there, second guessing and all that, that must have been really been such a hard time of Leonardo's life, especially knowing how, how insecure he was. Yeah. And, and they were the kind of rock gods of their time, too. I mean, this is, you know, at, at that time, Renaissance Italy, the expression of art was their theatre, it was their, their great show. We couldn't do it properly. We, we, the writers had written the unveiling of, of the Statue of David. This whole thing was carted across the piazza and then unveiled. <laughs> we just didn't have enough. <laughs> budget or time to do that but they and they were contemporaries of one another and that, that's in the 20 years difference in age 20 24 years difference in age or so and it was wonderful to cast Michelangelo as this kind of provocative flamboyant 
with his boy band around him <laughs> and <laughs> really winding him up. Please, the master, Leonardo. Yes! Let's go, come on. It's been a while since you heard anyone applauding as loud as this. <laughs> Steve Thompson wrote that episode and it was, it's one of my favorites. I, I just adored it because it was, it was this battle, this, this fragile egos coming into conflict with one another. Mm. Very different artists, again. I mean, we think of, you know, when we look back at the Renaissance, it kind of all looks the same if you're not looking at the detail of it. And what Leonardo saw in Michelangelo was Michelangelo was creating Roman and Greek sculpture. I was like, well, why do that? We're past that. That's passe. You're being, you're, this is throwback shit. You know, I'm trying to reinvent art and you're going back to this. You, you say you seek the spirit, mm -hmm. that you seek the divine, and, and this is what comes to you, a bland reproduction of the classics. But of course he wasn't. He was going, he was creating the Baroque, the whole Baroque era. He was creating this, this sort of vast, you know, what, what Leonardo would call vulgarity. You know, it was colourful and big and brassy and showy and theatrical, and he was trying to reduce things down to the minimal. What's he doing here? I'm sorry, Michelangelo needs to look at the other wall. There's a new commission for the whole, just here. It didn't really happen. The things really did happen. They, they, the, there were these two paintings that were painted, but they didn't do them at exactly the same time. It was within years of one another, not literally at the same time. But by capturing it in that way, it was a great way to, to get into the psyche of the characters and to, to reflect them on one another, which I thought was really beautifully done. Mm. Show the, the respect and love. You know, more than anything in the world, I want it to be you. I grew up in this city idolizing you. Of course, I knew I could never be, I could never hope to compete. I don't think any one drama can do it. Eight parts is definitely not enough to tell the story of Leonardo da Vinci, which is why we focused on this one relationship. And there are 10 year gaps in, in, at two points in the, in the show. But what I think was done very successfully is to really think hard about what relationships with his, his parents, what his childhood was like, how he was born of that, how his mind was forged of that. And he was very abused as a child. He was very brutalized and in ways that weren't necessarily uncommon in the era, but you know, this extraordinary imaginative genius came out of it. They didn't care for me, Father. Every night I slept on filth for years. That relationship with his father is quite toxic in one sense, but then there's that need to be loved in another sense. Yes. It's a rather lovely arc of the relationship with his father in the show. You, you sort of meet him first in the first episode, and then in episode seven, he visits him when he's come back to Florence to paint the Battle of Anghiari, and Leonardo has an opportunity to challenge him for his failures. I had power over my life, but there was no love to temper it. Well... At least you had this chance to admonish me for it. Welcome back, historian, author and Renaissance expert, Catherine Fletcher. I want to talk about Leonardo um, being an illegitimate son, as was Cesare Borgia. Um, and how common was that at that time and how was it viewed in the wider society? 
They were relatively relaxed about it, but um, they're not equal, illegitimate children to legitimate children. And even if they go through the process of being legitimised, they're still not quite regarded as being on the same level. But illegitimate children could play important roles in a family. Somebody like Cesare Borgia, who's the son of a pope, obviously a pope is not allowed to be married and have legitimate children. So the illegitimate children of popes are often quite significant in the politics of this period. So are the illegitimate children of families like the Medici. They often have quite important political roles. So, you know, yeah, there might be some sort of prejudice against him um, regarded as not quite equal, but, you know, it's not necessarily a problem to getting on in the world. So this is it, the famous fresco. You've been here before. I saw you. I didn't know if you'd want to see me. It's been so long. Now, the relationship he had with his father was quite complex, and we see Leonardo struggle a lot with self-doubt and confidence and try to reconcile this relationship. What do we know about his father and what happened? Well, so far as we can tell, um, Leonardo's father was, um, well, we know he was a lawyer, he was a lawyer from a family in Vinci, where Leonardo was born. Leonardo's father, Sir Piero, had gone off to work in the city, in Florence, and he appears to have come back to the village, got a local teenage girl called Caterina pregnant. She was this kind of 15-year-old, quite vulnerable teenager who'd recently been orphaned. And he basically abandons the kid to his parents to bring up. He took me to visit my grandfather. I played while they talked. And then... And then he was gone. So he again makes sure Leonardo gets a, a decent upbringing. He gets the teenage, possibly one night stand, um, married off to somebody else, which is the sort of best she can expect in circumstances. I mean, he does sort of do something for her to make sure that she is not kind of completely abandoned, um, but she doesn't kind of end up bringing up her own child as far as we can tell. And then he doesn't have a lot of contact with Leonardo, although there is a little bit of a link into the church of Santissima Nunziata where Leonardo later does some work. Um, so his father's notary for that church. Leonardo stays there for a while. He does some um, a painting called The Virgin and Child with St. Anne for them. There's a little bit of connection, but it's certainly not a kind of close relationship. I didn't ask to be born. No one asked for you to be born, Leonardo. You are a mistake the unhappy consequence of an evening spent drinking too much wine. It was your duty to raise me. You owed me that much. I owed you nothing. You gave me nothing. You made me feel like nothing. Because I always knew that's all you'd ever amount to. No. No one is meant to be alone. You are. Is that how it stays for the rest of his life? Will they ever get close? I mean, to my knowledge, it's never a close relationship. It's that kind of thing. Who knows what happened if they met casually on the street in Florence? Who knows what happened in terms of Leonardo's interactions with his siblings? These are all the kind of unknowns that are really fun when you're making historical drama because you can imagine and invent with them. But what's in the historical record suggests that probably the relationship was quite limited. How old was I when you sent me away, Father? I don't recall. I remember. 
We've talked about Leonardo's father, Catherine, but what do we know about his mother? Well, she was probably 15 when he was conceived. Um, She was a poor girl in the village of Vinci. Her grandmother had just died. Um, She's in this quite vulnerable situation when the local lawyer's son comes back from the big city and um, they have what may or may not have been a one-night stand but doesn't appear to have been an ongoing relationship in any case. And Beyond that, we don't know a great deal about her particular circumstances. Um, There have in the past been um, some rumours that she was possibly an enslaved woman from North Africa. That seems likely not to be the case. Um, The latest research sort of placed her fairly firmly within this um, village um, set of families. She doesn't appear to be enslaved in the records. They're fairly clear about whose daughter she is, whose granddaughter she is. Um, But After she gives birth to Leonardo, his father's family essentially take on responsibility for the child. um, And she is married off to another local man um, because she's not sort of posh enough, really, for the lawyer's son to marry. He is going to marry somebody with some influence in the city. um, She is going to be left in the village. So, you know, again, like Leonardo's father, quite a lot of distance placed between Leonardo and his mother and it seems to have been the grandparents and the father's extended family who do most of the looking after Leonardo when he was a child. And I suppose that would always play on anyone's mind and frame them, Mm. hence why the complexities may be in his personality. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are a lot of families around this time where you get children who end up being brought up by their grandparents, partly because of the levels of um, mortality in childbirth and such like. So these quite complicated extended families, step families, multiple half-brothers and sisters and so on, and that Leonardo exists in, like, they're not that unusual. They wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily expect people in the 15th century to have a very, very tight nuclear family. It's not the 1950s. Um, but uh, you know, again, yeah, all sorts of questions about you know what does that mean psychologically for a child growing up, where we just don't have straightforward answers. I'm Angelica Bell, and you're listening to Leonardo, the official podcast. Why weren't you at this ceremony? The unveiling of Michelangelo's new statue. You know my opinion. It doesn't belong here. Well, all the other artists were in favour. You you were outvoted. Now everyone is talking about it. Yeah, it's 17 feet. It's oh. hard to miss. Half of Florence has been living in its shadow while he's been sculpting it. We haven't seen the sun in weeks. So exactly what was the respect and love really like between Leonardo and Michelangelo? As we see in episode 7, it is true that they were both commissioned to adorn the walls of the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence at the same moment in history. No surprise then that much has been made about the pair's rivalry. So let's get some highlights about that, courtesy of Caroline Campbell from London's National Gallery, which happens to have paintings from both on display. Hello, I'm Caroline Campbell. I'm Director of Collections and Research at the National Gallery in London, and I'm responsible for the Leonardo's and Michelangelo's in the collection, as well as a whole heap of other great Italian Renaissance paintings. So what do we know about the relationship between Leonardo and Michelangelo? 
Well, we know that Leonardo and Michelangelo knew each other. We know that they were engaged on working on these separate paintings in the same space. Um, We also get the impression that they didn't necessarily like each other very much at all. But what's interesting is that you see references to each other in many of their pictures. Um, They treated the same subject. They thought about issues in common. They clearly had a big impact on each other. And although we think of Leonardo as somebody who didn't finish painting, or commissions. Michelangelo was often in the same position too. Um, And I think they were just such creative individuals with such good ideas that sometimes things just didn't work out the way they intended them to be. They do also seem to have been quite different characters. Leonardo was really renowned as being a courtier. He got on with people. He was incredibly charming. Um, He's alleged to have died in the arms of the King of France. Michelangelo, by contrast, was much more likely to lose his temper, um, to say exactly what he felt. He could be charming too, but he was probably stronger minded and certainly clearer um, on saying what he felt, which was really quite unusual in 15th and 16th century Italy for men of their class and position. But I think what makes Florentine painting and drawing and sculpture of the Renaissance so fascinating is that you've got these two figures together with Raphael working together, but in such completely different ways. Like me, you might be thinking, what are the chances of these world-renowned artists both ending up in Florence? Pure coincidence? Or was there more to it than that? I mean, 15th and 16th century Florence was one of the most competitive places to be an artist. But there were also more patrons than there were anywhere else and also elsewhere in Italy. And so, of course, these artists who were at the top of their game were working for the same people. And they were both also citizens of the same city, which is quite an extraordinary thing as well. I mean, it was clearly um, not an easy, it was clearly quite a tempestuous relationship. But isn't it wonderful that now, over 500 years later, we can really enjoy the results of it with these extraordinary works of art that we can still see all over museums and galleries today. I saw the new statue in the square. I love it. It's impressive. I think what made Leonardo such a perfectionist that he's not just simply interested in the subject matter of what he paints, but what it might represent in a broader fashion. And because he's always thinking and changing his mind, that's why I think sometimes it took him so long to complete works. And maybe, in fact, for him, the idea of things being completed was not important. It was the expression of the idea, which is a very modern concept and one which didn't necessarily fit with what a patron wanted in Renaissance. Italy when they just wanted something finished they could put on their wall which was a straightforward portrait or religious painting but what Leonardo gave you was was something else it was something so much more but for some people they were rather frustrated by that but it also enabled him to work for some of the great kings of his day and to move from court to court problem is that I need it finished for the battle's anniversary if you would like me to devote my time to a new major work I will leave the space to dream. Before we move on from this historical overlap between two of the world's greatest painters, what was it they were painting at the Palazzo Vecchio? Do you know what he's planning? Yes. Two battles were to be on two opposing walls at the Palazzo, also known at the time as the Palazzo della Signoria. 
For Leonardo, it was the Battle of Agnari, while Michelangelo was planning to paint the Battle of Cascina. Neither fresco was ever finished, and the story goes that Michelangelo only got as far as early sketches before he was called away to another job, as his artistic endeavours were acquired for the Sistine Chapel, which did get finished. Both battles are now lost. There is speculation that the frescoes might still be hidden behind the walls somewhere in the palazzo, but we do have some fragments and many detailed preparatory studies remain. Martin Clayton from the Royal Collection Trust is responsible for some of those works. But I wanted to know, first of all, about the scale and importance of Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari. It was huge to begin with. The Battle of Anghiari was to be about 20 metres, 70 feet wide. A battle contains so many dramas. Too many to be crammed into this tiny space. How about the entire war? It took Leonardo four years or thereabouts to paint the Last Supper, and the surface area of the Battle of Anghiari, to speaking in very crude terms, is about five times the area of the Last Supper. So it would have taken him many, many years to accomplish. He'd already experimented with a painting technique for the Last Supper, of a combination of, of oils and tempera and varnish, so he could paint on a wall in the same way that he could have executed a, a panel painting, an easel painting. And it was a, a disastrous technique in the case of the Last Supper. But he tried a similar experiment with the Battle of Anghiari and, and had similar trouble with the technique in the few areas that he did paint. And for partly for that reason, it was destroyed 50 years later. Oh, it needed more time. It wasn't properly set. The wax in the paint has melted. Yes. It has this aura as being one of the great lost masterpieces of the Renaissance, partly because of of, of the ambition of its simply its size and, and the enterprise that it would have taken Leonardo to, to execute something on that scale. You know, he wasn't Michelangelo. Michelangelo painted the entire Sistine ceiling in four years. Leonardo was working at a tenth the speed of, of Michelangelo, if that. It was an incredibly dynamic composition. Obviously, Michelangelo was trying similarly bold, vibrant, dynamic compositions at the same time, and Michelangelo's parallel piece, the Battle of Cascina, that was commissioned in competition with Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari, would have been just as as bold, as sort of breathtaking in its attempt to convey movement and action and violence in a static painting. The fact that Leonardo had never accomplished anything on that scale in Florence also contributed to its aura. For you know, While Milan was a big city, a bigger city than Florence at the time, Florence was very much more of an artistic centre than Milan. Many more people who developed as artists were influenced, I mean, it's a dreadful term, but let's use it, were influenced by the Battle of Anghiari than were by the Last Supper. It had a greater status as a as a school of art, if you like, as a passive school of art than the Last Supper did. And so it, it stands in the history of art in a much more fundamental way than the Last Supper does, even though the Last Supper was finished and the Battle of Anghiari wasn't. And we can see in the drawings what Leonardo was aiming at. All the copies that we know of it, they it just looks like melodrama. It just looks like this ridiculously contrived knot of horses and figures and they're all shouting and they're all thrashing. It, it, it looks too much, simply. But you can see in the drawings 
the sensitivity, the subtlety, the variation of facial expression, the great care that Leonardo took to understand the postures of the horses, the poses of the men, to bring them all together into a single moment of exhilaration. And I think to have had the centrepiece, what we call the fight for the standard, at the middle of a, of a panoramic landscape would have been a painting unlike anything that had ever been created. So it's, it's very easy to big up the reputation of a lost painting because we can imagine all sorts of things, we can project things into it. But in the case of the Battle of Anghiari, I think it's entirely justified. He'll never finish it. Still, you have to admire his ambition. Everyone is talking about it. He'll die of old age before he finishes it. Oh, which is a shame, because I'd like to see what he'd do. Yeah, the old man might still have something left in him. <laughs> yeah, the fading remains of his reputation. <laughs> <laughs> a healthy or not so healthy competitiveness between those two, then, may have contributed to some of the greatest art of the Renaissance. As we said at the start, the dramatic tension is growing in many areas now we're on to episode 7. Leonardo's relationships are fraying. Life and work at his studio is intense, and we'll find out more about that shortly. But we've seen many references to curses and superstitions throughout this story. Some of it's tied up with Leonardo's fascination with nature, especially with birds. But remember this from earlier in the series? Something's bothering you. That's my earliest memory. I was just a baby at my mother's house outside Vinci. And a bird flew in and landed on my crib. My mother was a peasant girl, her head full of superstition, and she was terrified. She didn't know what to do, she didn't know what it meant, so she took me to the old woman in the village. And my mother believed what the old woman had told her. She said I was cursed. Whether you're someone who salutes a lone magpie or not, just in case it's bringing bad luck, humans have long sought hidden meaning in the wider world around us. Exactly what people have believed has shifted over time, but Alessandro Arcangeli specialises in Renaissance superstitions. I'm Alessandro Arcangeli. I'm a teacher uh, Renaissance and Early Modern History at the University of Verona. I'm a cultural historian with a specific uh, field of interest in the history of uh, leisure, pastimes, dance, as well as medical history and the history of emotions and of dreams. Referring to that clip from the drama we just heard where Leonardo recounts a curse he believes was caused by a bird flying onto his crib as a baby, would a superstition such as that have been common at that time? They, they were extremely popular. It would have been difficult to probably distinguish between uh, official beliefs of religion uh, as the one uh, enforced by the church. Uh, official religion worked very much also at a popular level in the form of invocation to saints uh, and, and others uh, to help you uh, for sorting uh, all sorts of problems, including uh, the ones of health. So, yes, it was a very shared uh, set of uh, conviction and practice uh, and also had uh, a very uh, learned counterpart because uh, there were plenty of uh, astrologers, magi and uh, 
alchemists who practice uh, a form of proto-science which, which we would struggle to recognize as uh, related to modern science, but in fact uh, they were a form of experimenting with, with nature that produce also some, some form of knowledge that we are now too familiar and able to recognize as, as reliable. But it was very mixed and very typical of the time that all this combined together. Superstitions were a serious business in the Renaissance and people would genuinely believe that the presence of a bird, for example, could place a curse upon them. Uh, they would and they would uh, try to uh, do all the possible means uh, to counteract it, and so even uh, by recurring both uh, to the help of a priest, uh, on an exorcist, or or whatever the official church provided, but also some countercultural forms of fighting uh, the evil witchcraft and uh, that sort. Very few people at the time would have regarded as this as a fraud. They would have taken it seriously, and or at least they would have tried their best to make sure that it didn't have an effect on their lives. And just how prominent were birds in this culture of superstition? Surely there could have been birds that were regarded as a, the carrier of bad luck, uh, but I don't have uh, any specific uh, tradition in mind. Uh, then there was another uh, thing that was typical of, uh, if you like, a form of superstition, of, uh, of natural understanding of the time that is quite remote from ours, and was the tradition of uh, physiognomics. There was also the, the idea that if... Uh, your your face looks like that of uh, a bird or a cow or a lion, you would have that as a, a trait, as a character in your personality. There was Because there was a, a so much belief in the, the world as one of correspondence between the inner and the outer, between the man and the cosmos and so on, even your external feature, your facial characteristics, were revealing your, of your inner self. And in that, even the similarity of uh, the formal aspect of, of some animals more familiar uh, with everyday life uh, would, a kind of rever- would, a, uh, would have an effect on the way in which people were perceived and, and treated. As we've been hearing throughout this episode just as now, relationships can be complicated. But there are two key characters in Leonardo's life that we've seen play a big role in the drama. Two of his employees, Salai and Tommaso. Both were real people. They existed. Looking first to Salai, portrayed by Spanish actor Carlos Cuevas in the drama. He was quite the character and the person who inherited much of Leonardo's art after his death, including the Mona Lisa. There have even been rumours over the years that Salai was the model inspiration behind the Mona Lisa, rather than Lisa del Giocondo. No wonder then that Salai was an intriguing person to bring to life on screen for writer Steve Thompson. Well, Salai was first of all his student and then his lover and then his lifetime companion and, you know, and arguably the most important person in his life. 
we know a little bit about Salai. There are portraits of him. He, he sat for Leonardo on many occasions. There's one extraordinary portrait of him, I believe, as John the Baptist. And it, it is an extraordinary portrait because the fact that they called him Salai Little Devil, you can see it in his eyes. There's an extraordinary almost demonic stare that he's doing, smiling and at the same time feeling very impish and mischievous. And the minute I connected with those paintings, I just thought there was real humour, devilish humour in this guy. And so it was, it was great fun to not only write the, the tenderness and the closeness of their relationship, but also the banter. The very first time they meet in episode four when Salai sits for him. Relax your arm a little. Relax a little more. You're, you're trying too hard. Just relax. How do you expect me to relax when you're barking at me like that? The very next thing Salai does is steal. Steal the contents of his um, cupboard and run off with his art materials. What's happened? The model. He's taken everything, the paper, the surprise, my notebook, all my designs, everything. And actually, all of this is based on truth. We know that Salai was a, a, you know, a thief and an opportunist. And if he was a model in a famous artist's studio, of course he was going to run off with the paper and the pens. Where have they gone? You don't think I took them? Who else? Everyone knows you're a thief. Leonardo, you know I would never do such a thing. We're ruined. We have to replace them. With what? It, it was great fun to connect Leonardo in his very protected world with somebody that was a criminal and street smart, but also had a great sense of humour. You can see it in his eyes in the portrait. Had a fantastic sense of humour. Everything is just a joke to you. And apparently you think everything is desperately serious. <laughs> Leonardo could not have done what he had done unless he had Salai working for him. Salai was brilliant at procuring materials. He was brilliant. I mean, you see this in the in the episode about the Last Supper when they run out of paint. Salai is the person who manages to, to procure more paints for them. Some pigments went missing last night from Santa Maria del Grazie. I might have heard about it. Whoever took them, I figured they might end up in your hands. <laughs> How much do you want for them? How much are you willing to pay? Name your price. In many ways, he was Leonardo's fixer. And that's what made him, you know, such a fascinating character to me. They were not only lovers, he was also the guy who was Leonardo's gateway to the world. Leonardo could not have been Leonardo if Salai had not been helping him, I suspect. How did you get this? You just need to know who to ask. Everything's here. Yes. Tell the men we return to work tomorrow morning. We'll do. Let's investigate that relationship with Salai and Leonardo a little further with historian Catherine Fletcher. So in terms of his um, relationships and work colleagues and friends in this drama, we know about Salai and we know about Tommaso Massini. Yeah, both of them are real characters. I mean, Salai is somebody who um, joined Leonardo's household around about 1490. He was 10. Um, Leonardo was 28 years older than him. So the very, very big age gap there. It's a kind of age gap that probably if you played it very realistically might be potentially a bit uncomfortable for modern audiences. There is within this um, you know, homosexual culture in Florence, and quite, you know, relationships between men and teenage boys are not necessarily that uncommon and that's something where attitudes now are very very different um Vasari who describes her Salai is this beautiful youth with curly hair but um he's obviously quite badly behaved in Leonardo's household um he's kind of a liar he's a thief he caused a lot of trouble 
Leonardo obviously has this quite tense relationship with him sometimes, but also he keeps him around. He stays in the household for um, 25 years. He's a model. He um, becomes an artist himself, not one really of Leonardo's standard. He kind of famously paints um, a topless version of the Mona Lisa. He's, so he's a bit of a he's a bit of a character. Um, but of course, you know the exact details of how that relationship plays out is a kind of something really there for fiction. Soleil, a word. You have talent. You could be a great artist. But if I catch you stealing again, I will kick you out on the street where you came from. Am I clear? It's like asking a fish not to swim. And then we've got Tommaso Massini. Um, he's somebody who we know quite a lot less about in terms of the real record. Partly we know about Salai because he's an artist and model himself. So there are paintings and there are documents. Um, Tommaso works as an assistant more on the technical side. So far as we can tell, he is into the flying machines. He works on the big Battle of Anghiari painting. And he shares Leonardo's sort of fascination for nature and for the the kind of technical and and curiosity-driven sides of investigation. So they're quite different characters on different sides of Leonardo's work. You know, loyalty doesn't just mean agreeing with him. Sometimes it means telling him the truth when no one else will. Awfully gloomy, aren't you? So you just smile and nod, like everything will be fine. Better than piling your fears on top of the weight that's already on his shoulders. Nothing is straightforward, it seems, in the world of Leonardo da Vinci, and that rings true for the drama where we're still waiting to find out what happened to Catalina de Cremona. Could Leonardo really have killed her in this story? Will he hang for the crime? All will be revealed in episode eight of the drama and in our final episode of this podcast. Everybody go home. We are done. Did you kill the master? We go home, boys. Go home, boys. Come on, have the maestro. I think that's enough for today. Next time then, and this is an early spoiler warning, as we will be looking in detail at the dramatic ending to Leonardo. Matilda DeAngelis and Freddie Heim will return to give us their thoughts on the series' conclusion, as does Leonardo himself, Aidan Turner. It's funny, because I, I do have him down as somebody in my heart. I mean, we'll never know, I suppose, but somebody who was quite a humble, honest person, a person who didn't chase money or fame or any of those vices. I think, I can't imagine a world where he wasn't that. Another theme, I suppose, was love. Love and trust and and, and how they go hand in hand. And that's what I kind of hope. I hope people are surprised and maybe I'm continuing to guess. I like the idea that, that he would kill for love. This podcast was created by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative in association with Lux Fide. Produced by Natalie Jameson and James Deacon. Edited by Chris Attaway. Sound mix by Mark Pittam. And production support from Barney Lee.